Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the example of Philip and Nathaniel and what we can learn about what it means to follow you from their story. We pray that you would be with us all this morning, open our, open our hearts to hear your word. We pray that we would know you and that we would know your great love for us. We ask this all in the name of your Son. Amen. Maybe may Well, we're working through a sermon series, an epiphany called The Baptized Life. Everybody can hear me okay? No? All right. I'll talk through this. Is that better? Yeah, there we go. All right. So we are working through a sermon series, an epiphany called The Baptized Life, and we're going through the gospel passages in the Sunday lectionary. Now, mostly these walk us through Mark, but today we're in John. I'll talk a little bit about that in just a minute. Uh, The series began, though, last week with Father Jonathan preaching on Christ's baptism by John the Baptizer. It's not John the Baptist, it's John the Baptizer. He's very much baptizing. That's one of his callings. Uh, and, And Father Jonathan told us that as we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, we take on an identity in Christ that is conferred by that baptism. And that identity is the ones who are beloved by Christ. We are deeply loved by him, and that is the basis for all of our service, all of our discipleship, everything we do in the Christian life. Father Jonathan told us, being precedes doing in the Christian life. Our identity as those who have been called beloved by God in Christ precedes anything that we do in his service. So how's that going for you this week? All the names that you've called yourself, all the names that you've been called by others, have you remembered this primary identity, this principal identity in Jesus? It's kind of hard for me this week. I don't know about you. If you failed at that this week, if you failed to live according to that identity, to have that identity first and foremost in your minds, that's your homework for this week. Recall who you are. Jesus has given you his name, beloved. This morning we also learn that when Christ calls us beloved in our baptism, he also calls us to follow him. And we explore what that means this morning in the Gospel of John by looking at the calling of Philip and Nathaniel. So as I mentioned, the lectionary kind of switches gears this morning. We move from Mark to the Gospel of John. And that highlights some differences for us between the different Gospels. I mean, John's Gospel is somewhat unique in the vantage that he gives us of Jesus among all the different Gospels. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes called the synoptic Gospels, which means that they share a similar or a common point of view. In fact, in many places, they share identical language. And what's interesting about them is where they diverge from one another. How, you know, Matthew or Luke will tell the story a little differently than Mark to highlight some facet of Jesus' identity or work that's different. Or they'll, they'll, tell, they'll tell a different story. They'll tell a new story. They'll introduce a new story that is designed to highlight who Jesus is. Or they'll put the stories in different orders to, to make a clear a claim about who Jesus is. That's how the synoptics work. But John is very different, okay? In the synoptics, these gospels that share a common or similar point of view... Jesus' actions are as important as his words. In other words, what we see Jesus doing is as important as what we see Jesus saying. But see, John foregrounds the words of Jesus. He makes the words of Jesus, he highlights those words of Jesus as as the most important thing that we're supposed to pay attention to. And so the actions are are, are described in these very terse ways, these ways that that, we kind of long for more information about, you know what I'm saying? And we're kind of like, man, that's like, I'd like to know a little bit more of the context. But what John wants us to pay attention to is what Jesus is saying and what other people are saying to Jesus. 
That's what's important to John. And this difference actually goes a little ways towards explaining why this account of Philip and Nathaniel is so terse. It's like kind of abrupt, right? I mean, you know, if you're, if you're sitting there pumping gas at the Sunoco, right, and a dude walks up to you and says, hey, follow me. You better not follow that guy. You know what I'm saying? I'm, just, I'm telling you this as your friend. Do not follow the guy, okay? Because if you want your money and your life to remain yours, you don't want to follow the guy, okay? But we have Jesus just kind of strolling into Galilee, and he finds Philip, and he says, follow me. And Peter's like, sure, I don't have anything better to do today. I guess I'll just follow you, okay? Now, uh, now we, we may have a clue as to why Philip so readily follows Jesus in the text itself. It tells us in verse 44 that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And, and this is, I have a kind of unfair advantage over you this morning because I studied the context, right? So immediately before this passage, we see the calling of Andrew and Peter, okay? Andrew and Peter are the first disciples called, according to John. And, and we also learn that they were first the disciples of John the baptizer, who, in fact, as we learned last week, was the one who baptized Jesus. And, and he says of his, of his own self that his ministry consists in this. He's baptizing, and he's the one who points forward to the one who is greater than him, the one whose the straps of whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. So his disciples are looking for the one that they're supposed to follow, right? So when he says in front of Andrew, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Andrew's like, oh, now I know what to do, and he runs and follows him. And then, he, and then this encounter with Jesus is so powerful that he goes and tells Peter, Simon, Peter, that I have discovered the Messiah, the one whom the law and the prophets testify to. So Peter comes and follows him too. And Peter has his own encounter with Jesus. Amazing. Okay, but then we have Philip. So maybe Philip is not simply from Bethsaida. Maybe he's also from Andrew's and Peter's hood, you know. And they've given him a little reference so they know that, so he knows that Jesus is legit, okay. So it's not just some random guy coming up to you and saying, hey, follow me. Um, But I think there's more going on in this passage, actually, than simply that Philip's gotten a reference about Jesus. You see, Jesus has this unnerving way of not simply seeing people, but seeing through people. He sees right through all of the airs that we put on, right through all of the hype, the personas that we project in front of people, I mean, right through the lies that we tell ourselves and each other. He sees right through that to the essence of the person. It's a kind of stare that from anybody else would like chill your blood. I mean, it would chill you right to the bone, right? Because in anybody else, it would be accompanied by a kind of cynicism, maybe even a contempt. But none of that is in Jesus. And we know that, not only because of the response that people have to him, but because earlier in this chapter, we have this gorgeous prologue. If you haven't read John 1, 1 through 14 recently, I urge you to pick that up and read it. It is gorgeous. But John tells us that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, the Word of God who has taken on flesh and become one of us. In other words, the one who created Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel is the one who looks into them with great love in order to redeem them. You see? It's not a stare that, that is accompanied by contempt, but one that is accompanied by great love. So there's this incredible moment in the passage immediately before ours when with Simon Peter, Jesus says, hey, your name's Simon, but I'm going to call you Kephos or Peter. Who knows what that means? The rock. Yes. 
This comes up actually in the Gospel of Matthew in a different place. It's in the context of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus says there, that confession, that one that you just made, and the one who made it, that's going to be what I build my church on. Now, that's a powerful expression. And you and I know, having read the Gospels, that uh, Peter's going to have many occasions to doubt whether or not he is in fact rocky. I mean, he's just got this terrible temper. He blurts out things at the wrong moment. You know, he cuts off a dude's ear in a kind of rash, temperamental, like, fit, right, when Jesus is arrested. Uh, and then we find him, and he's denying Jesus three times before the cross. I want to ask you, what do you think Jesus' expression is when he looks at Peter across the yard? Do you think he's angry? Do you think he's disappointed? Or do you think he knows? And he loves. What was his expression? What you think Jesus' expression was there indicates to me a lot about what you think the character of Jesus is. What does he think of you? Are you his beloved or not? Jesus looks right into the essence of Peter and he says, here's what I see. I see who you will be. You are the rock. I will make you stand. Paul puts it like this in Romans 14.4. He is the Lord's servant, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The creator is the redeemer. He is the one that sees into you. He is the one who sees what he intends to make you. And I think the same thing is happening here with Philip, okay? I think that's why Philip gets up and follows him immediately. When Christ says, follow me, it is the insight that Jesus has into who Philip is and what Philip can be that compels Philip to go. And John actually points us in this direction when he, when he has Philip running off to tell Nathaniel. I mean, Nathaniel's skeptical, as one might be. Nathaniel, I found the Savior of the world! Sure you did, Philip. <laughs> right? I mean, like, how, how would we respond to that? I mean, it's like, clearly, this is a, an insane thing to claim. But Philip tells him, Come and see. An encounter with Jesus will be enough to persuade you. Philip, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, the 4th century church father, hits the nail on the head exactly when he says that the presence of Jesus and his words have an enchanting quality about them. An enchanting quality. Jesus was immensely persuasive. He made an incredible impression on everybody that he ever met. And yet no one who followed him ever felt manipulated by him. Jesus was not a huckster or a charlatan. He was the real deal. He sees directly into the heart and the personality of each person. And he says, here's what I see. He loves them and he loves you this morning. We have this incredible contrast this morning between Philip and Nathaniel, and it highlights for us the different ways that actually Jesus ministers to those around him. It is always context-dependent. It always is dependent upon the uniqueness of the personality of every person that he encounters. So when Philip gets excited and he runs and tells Nathaniel, hey, the Messiah has come, Nathaniel is an icy intellectual skeptic, right? I mean, he's incredulous. He's, can anything good come from there, from this place, Nazareth, that you're telling me the Savior is coming from? I mean, some ancient manuscripts simply have Nathaniel saying, out of Nazareth? As if to say, 
You expect me to believe that the savior of the world is coming out of a nothing town like that? No way. Sorry, Philip. And Jesus knows, actually, that this is Nathaniel's response. He says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip came and talked to you. So he sees Nathaniel's response. He sees him under the fig tree. And he knows that Nathaniel is skeptical. But he's not phased or intimidated by this. In fact, he makes a joke out of it. By the way, I'll just say this as an aside. Our English translations do not highlight for us very well the humor of Jesus. Jesus is hilarious. He's like incredibly witty and always making puns. There's tons of puns in the New Testament, right? Uh, so uh, I, I think it's important as, as, uh, like, uh, as the pre- to be the preacher uh, for us to highlight for you when this is happening, okay? So this is an example of the humor of Jesus, right? He, he knows about this response and his, his reply is this kind of wry, like ironic, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 reply to Nathaniel. Um, he sees him under the fig tree and he replies, an Israelite in whom there is no guile or deceit. In other words, I got you, buddy. I know you're skeptical. I understand that. He makes a joke out of it. I love this reply. And I love it not just because it shows, that, it shows us that God has, like, enjoys a good laugh, but it also shows us how Christ looks into a person and sees not only what the person is like, but also what he can do with the person's personality for the kingdom. God works with the grain of our giftings and our personalities when he calls us. And this should not surprise us, actually, because the God who loves us and redeems us, as I have said, is the one who created us, the one who fashioned us with these unique personalities and giftings that we possess. Remember, I said Nathaniel is this kind of intellectual skeptic. Above all, Nathaniel does not want to be deceived. I wonder, John doesn't tell us, but I wonder, what has happened in his history? What broken relationships, what disappointments, what disillusionments has Nathaniel experienced that made him that way? He's very cautious. He does not want to be deceived. But Jesus knows this. And he looks at him with great love and he says, I'm going to use that. He says, you don't want to be deceived. And I tell you that neither will you be a deceiver. Your name is truth teller. You have no guile and deception in you. What a gift to Nathaniel and the church that he takes this refusal to be deceived. He takes the skepticism and he turns it so that it serves the church. It serves the kingdom. Amazing. That is what Christ does for each of us. He knows you. He knows your formation. He knows your personality. And he will use that for the kingdom. So this reply is not going to be enough to convince Nathaniel, though. And Jesus already knows this, too. He needs more than simply a new name, right? He needs the confirmation that he can trust and give himself to the hope that has just been kindled in his heart. He needs some kind of empirical verification of the reality of who Jesus is. I think we can safely translate Nathaniel's defensive reply to Jesus in modern parlance in this way. He's like, you don't know me, bro. Step back. In the age before universal surveillance and spy cams, though, Jesus is able to verify this for him. He says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip talked to you. This is exactly what Nathaniel needs in order to unlock his heart. It's a confirmation that what he felt in his innermost depths could be believed by his mind. 
And as Dale Bruner puts it, a biblical commentator, at this moment, the guileless, cool, rational, studious, intellectual Nathaniel now has an emotional, almost Southern Baptist-style conversion. He's flooding Jesus with titles. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. What's fascinating, though, is how Jesus responds to this. He doesn't say, all right, now you got it, buddy. Finally. He says, dude, you're not... You are too easily persuaded. You need more verification, and I will give it to you. Yes, I am the Messiah, but just wait. You will see greater signs than the one that I have just given you. And he makes this astonishing claim about who the Messiah is and what Nathaniel will see. And he introduces it in this, with this kind of special formula that appears only in John's gospel. Now, our translation has, verily I say to you. That's not what Jesus says. He says, amen, amen. Okay, now all the gospels, whenever they want to highlight something that's important that Jesus is about to say, hasn't said, has Jesus say amen, okay, amen. But only in John do we see this doubling up. Amen, 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 I say unto you, right? This very powerful kind of phrase. Okay, we don't really know why John employs that formula, but we do know this. Every time that he employs it, he's saying, hey, listen up, Jesus is about to drop some knowledge, Okay? Very important. Pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. And then Jesus takes us back to the book of Genesis, to the dream that Jacob has while he's on the run from his brother Esau at Bethel. He goes to sleep on a stone. It's not a very comfortable pillow, I can imagine. But he has a dream while he's sleeping on the stone that there's a ladder that's set upon the earth and it stretches all the way into the heavens. And it's kind of like a mystical highway with angels descending and ascending on it. The word angel in scripture means messenger. And so the, the, the idea here is that this is a kind of like mystical information superhighway. God's revelation to humanity and humanity's ability to see who God is. What he's saying to us, to interpret things correctly. This is a kind of strange story, right? Just kind of wedged in the middle of Jacob's account of himself, or the account of Jacob in, in Genesis. But Jesus references this and he says, the son of man is in fact this ladder. The Son of Man is this kind of mystical information superhighway. The heavens are opened in the Son of Man. And you are able to look into God and God is able to speak to you through the person of the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation in all four Gospels. Only he uses this term and he uses it exclusively to talk about himself. And this is a term we need to understand that is both extremely ordinary and also glorious and majestic. On the one hand, it basically means the dude. Okay. Like Psalm 8.4 says this, What is man that you were mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The dude. What is the dude that you care for him? But on the other, it is a term of exaltation. Daniel 7 has this incredible vision. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To the son of man was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So ordinary and majestic in the Old Testament. 
And I believe that when Christ uses this term of himself, and I think the reason that he loves this term so much is, and the reason that he talks about this, uses this term to talk about the ladder between earth and heaven, is that the humility and the glory of this term expresses the core of Jesus' ministry itself. The one, on the one hand, he lives this incredibly ordinary life. The, the most amazing moments of the Gospels are not when he is beating back death in the life of his friend Lazarus or in Jairus' daughter, or when he is resisting temptation to the shedding of blood at Gethsemane, saying, not my will, but your will be done. These dramatic moments at the heart of Scripture. But also, these moments where Jesus is just doing ordinary stuff. He's tired. He's hungry. He's eating with his friends. He's making jokes. I told you about that earlier. So look out for that. Making jokes. Making puns with people's names, right? These amazing moments of just ordinariness, humility. Those are the astonishing moments in the gospel to me. And it is because Jesus, in Jesus, God has taken on human form. And it's not as though God is putting on an, like an astronaut suit or something like that. He's putting on a body like an astronaut would put on a spacesuit. It's not like that at all. Christ assumes human flesh. Everything about humanity he takes on. Body, soul, mind, willing, the whole thing. He takes it all on. As Gregory Nazianza said it in the 4th century, whatever he has not assumed, he has not healed. And he has healed us all the way down. And therefore he had to take on everything about us. And the life that he lived had to be a genuinely human life complete life, a whole life. It's interesting because he says to Nathaniel, you'll see the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What I think he means is the sign that you will see is myself, this life that I'm going to live in front of you, this ordinary and very dramatic and majestic life, this regal life and this ordinary life. That will be the sign. That is what will ultimately persuade you. That is what will make you the truth teller, the one in whom there is no guile or deceit. So what does this passage have to do with us this morning in Pittsburgh? I think this passage tells us two things chiefly. Number one, it tells us what Jesus thinks about you this morning. And number two, I think it tells us what it means to tell others about Christ. This morning, whatever state you're in, whatever problems or cares or anxieties you're coming here with this morning, Christ is not surprised by them. He knows and he sees. He sees you. And he sees through the hype. He sees through deception. He sees everything. But he loves you. He wants you to become who he has called you to be. You are his beloved from the very foundation of the world. And that love that is stronger than death is the basis upon which you can build your life. That is a secure and a solid foundation. This morning, what Christ thinks about you is that he loves you. He likes you. He is not disappointed by you. He is not angry at you. He loves you. Do you believe that? 
That is the identity that he conferred upon you in your baptism. Secondly, though, this passage tells us what it means to share Christ with others. Now, this cannot mean something other or contradictory to what I just said. Whatever it means to share Christ with others cannot contradict what I just said about your identity in Christ. In fact, your identity in Christ must become the basis upon which you share Christ with anyone else. So what might that mean? The first and most important point that I want to stress is that you are not the chief evangelist. Jesus is. It is Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that converts anyone. Anyone who has ever come to know Jesus has come to know Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the person, the work, and the words of Jesus to that person's heart. Remember what I said about Cyril of Alexandria saying that Christ's words have this kind of enchanting quality upon the hearer, right? Christ's person and his words are intoxicating. They are enchanting. You are not the chief evangelist. The goal of our lives, of our discipleship, is to ask others to come and see who Jesus is himself. And I want you to notice, think about Philip introducing Nathaniel to Jesus. He knows Nathaniel is skeptical, but he says, come and see. An encounter with Jesus will be sufficient to persuade you. He doesn't pile up apologetic reasons and proof texts to prove to Nathaniel this is in fact the Messiah. No, come and see. But also this passage calls us as Jesus' disciples to conversion ourselves and to courage. Philip says, come and see. He doesn't say, go and see. He's not like, go out there and check him out. He's like, let me walk alongside of you so that you can see who this Jesus is. Let me introduce you to him, to his person and his words. But of course, Philip has already had his encounter with Christ. He is filled with joy. And that is the basis upon which he runs out and tells Nathaniel. It's got to be the same for us. Our telling others about Jesus has to be rooted in our own encounter with who Christ is. Beloved, this morning I want you to know who Jesus is. I want you to encounter him. I want you to know who you are as his beloved. I want you to become who you are as his beloved. I pray this morning that you will be converted, that you will come and see this Christ who made you and who sees you calling you to himself, that your call to others to come and see him will come from a passion that comes from your own joy in encountering Jesus. When we ask others to come and see, we want to be like Philip. We want to invite them to share this encounter with us. This telling others about Jesus, this evangelism, this is based in the joy of discovery. You see? When we discover who Jesus is, we want to share him with other people. We want to invite them and help them, walk alongside of them, to come and meet this Christ with us. It is Christ's words that persuasive, that are persuasive. It is Christ's words that call to repentance. But we have the privilege of inviting others into that relationship. So you might be sitting there this morning asking, yes, but how? 
sure, I want to share Jesus with other people. How do I do that? You know, I, am I, I going to go into work and start preaching to people? No. We begin in very simple ways. We begin exactly where we are. We begin by building trust with those who don't know Christ. It's a very simple matter. Be a good friend. Pray for people. Take an interest in them. Ask them about themselves. Go beyond small talk. Invite other people into a relationship. And be honest about who you are. Don't deny that you're a Christian. And don't hide the fact that you're a Christian. Don't try to squirm out of that conversation. But be upfront about it. There will be suspicion and skepticism with some people. I can, I can assure you of that. And yet this is the calling to be honest about who we are, to be honest about this hope that is within us. And maybe as those relationships deepen, as they blossom, there might be an opportunity to invite someone to your community group or to invite someone to an alpha course. We actually have an alpha course that's beginning on January 24th. Timmy Podner's in charge of putting that together. I'm incredibly grateful to her for the, all the work that's going into that. Maybe that's the place where you invite people to, to explore who Jesus is, to explore his words, his person, his claims about himself. My point here, I don't want it to get lost in the practicalities. My point is this. Faithful evangelism does not come from a place of anxiety or guilt or crushing weight of obligation, nor does it have a kind of programmatic quality to it. It emerges spontaneously from a joyful encounter with Christ and a desire to share the joy of this discovery with others around you. So my prayer for you this morning is that you will have that kind of encounter with Christ, that you will hear him calling you his beloved. You belong to him and he loves you. That's got to be your foundation. That's got to be your bottom line, your bedrock. Everything else is negotiable. Not that. You are his beloved. You belong to him. Nothing can separate you from this love that is in Jesus Christ. Let it be the basis of everything that you are and everything that you do. Your discipleship must come from this source and it must be continuously refreshed by this source. This and this alone is the only basis for our telling others about Christ and it's the only basis for our discipleship. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for meeting us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and for calling us your own, your beloved, in your Son, Jesus. I pray that we would continuously put on Christ, put on this identity as Christ's beloved in our baptism. Help us to do that this morning and every day as we leave here, in our work lives, in our home lives, in all the relationships that we have. May we be the ones who are marked as Christ's own, his beloved. Amen.